This evening we will be looking at Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles there. God often does extraordinary works in our lives. At the very least, He brings us to Christ. So He's done one very extraordinary work. And we praise Him. And we want to tell the world about Him. But how quickly and how easily is it for us to forget God? We pursue holiness at at maybe a level greater than ever before because we've seen God and His greatness and we've recognized Him for His works. And then time seems to slow down. Trouble comes. The routine of the ordinary kicks in and we find it hard to trust in God. Gideon here, a couple weeks ago we looked at chapter 7, mostly chapter 7, end of chapter 6 through the beginning of chapter 8. But he had witnessed an extraordinary work of God there in chapter 7. And and in this passage we saw God's hand at work all along the way. That the Lord was the one who gave Midian into their hands. But now, in chapter 8, we don't hear much of God. God is all but absent as far as the, the people of Israel are concerned. So let me read our passage for tonight, beginning in verse 4 and uh, Judges chapter 8. This is the Word of God. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary. And I am pursuing Zeba and Zelmunna, the kings of Midian. The leader of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zelmunna already in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? Gideon said, All right, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zelmunna into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He went up from there to Penuel, or Peniel, and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him, just as the men of Sukkoth had answered. So he spoke, spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkar and their armies with them, about 15,000 men. All who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east, for the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in tents on the east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heras, and he captured a youth from Sukkoth and questioned him. Then the youth wrote for, down for him the princes of Sukkoth and its elders, seventy-seven men. He came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zilmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zilmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are weary? He took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness, and briars, and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. And he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, They were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. He said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. 
But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise up yourself and fall on us, for as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments which were on the camel's necks. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, We will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads any more. And the land was undisturbed for forty years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accordance with all the good that he had done to Israel. Gideon has seen God work in extraordinary ways by delivering him and the people of Israel from the hand of the Midianites. But what we need to understand tonight is that God must be honored in the ordinary. We must honor God in the ordinary. In chapter 7, God honored himself through the extraordinary means of delivering Israel in spectacular ways. He he, um, he he protected them and saved them from these from these oppressors. Gideon had just witnessed this spectacular victory by God over the Midianites. There were, remember, 135,000 men according to chapter 8, verse 10. And they were equipped to defeat Israel, but God was on Israel's side. And so Gideon gathers up 32,000 men ready to fight. But God said, that's too many. Because if you have that many and you win, you will be tempted to boast in your own strength. And so 32,000 is too many men. So here's what I need you to do. Those who are fearful, send them back to camp. And so 22,000 men go back to camp. 10,000 remain. God says there's still too many. And so what I want from you now is that those who are alert, who who are keeping their eyes up when they're uh, when they're taking a drink from the water, God said, "Keep only those." Three hundred were left. Ninety-seven hundred went back to camp. And these three hundred were the ones that God used to to save the people of Israel. They didn't come with swords. Remember their weapons. 
It was a trumpet in one hand and a clay pot with the torch inside of it in the other hand. And at the appointed time, at the changing of the guards, they broke the pots so that it looked like there were just thousands and thousands of troops that were on the hillside coming down into the valley of Midian. And as the people of Midian woke up, the 135,000 men, they woke up and they saw all these torches which apparently represented thousands of troops. They saw also the guards who were coming back to bed and some of them who were going out for, their ne- for the next watch with the weapons there. And they thought those were Israelites and so they started killing those guards. And everyone started killing each other and 122,000 men died. 15,000 were on the run. Gideon recognized at chapter 8, verses 1-3 through that it was God who had the victory. It was God. When the Ephraimites asked him, well, why didn't you come and get us earlier? Why couldn't we be a part of this victory of, of capturing these military leaders, Oreb and Zeb? And Gideon's response is, what have I done in comparison to you? But now we come to verse 4 and the spectacular is over. The extraordinary is gone. It's, it's, it's done. And now life goes on. Gideon, Israel, Gideon and Israel are back to their ordinary life and they're responsible to clean up the mess to finish the job of these 15,000 men and the two kings that are still on the run. And they have to do it just through ordinary and mundane means. And it turns out to be an avenue by which Gideon uses to exalt himself. And Gideon fails to honor God in this chapter in four primary ways. Gideon fails to honor God in four primary ways. Number one, Gideon fails to honor God by taking out revenge on the eastern tribes, verses 4 to 17. By taking out revenge on the eastern tribes. Gideon and his 300 men are on the move toward the Midianite kings. Zeba and Zalmunna, they're on the run. They have escaped. They were a part of this camp apparently and they took off. But Gideon and his men are tired and hungry. It's been a long day. It's been a long couple of days. And so they stop into one of the eastern tribes, one of the tribes of Israel, into a city called Sukkah. And they ask for bread in verse 5 from these men. Will you help us? You know how they responded. We read it. They said, no, we're not going to help you. Do you have Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands? Do you have these two Midianite kings already in your hands? Because if you do, we'll help you. But if not, we're not going to. And I think the reason behind that is because the, the people of Succoth didn't trust that Gideon would get them. They, they, they were under the oppression of these Midianite kings. And if Gideon lost in this battle, guess who the Midianite kings would come back to? They'd come back to all the various places that had helped Gideon along the way, all their accomplices, so to speak. So we're not going to give you any help, Gideon. We don't trust that you're going to win the battle. Notice Gideon's vengeful heart in verse 7. Gideon said, All right, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. In other words, how dare you question my ability to come to, to finish the job, to attack these kings? D- did you not see what I just did in chapter 7? You, you see how quickly it turns from, what did I do compared to you? It was God who had the victory. 
how quickly it turns to how dare you not help me. And now I'm coming after you. Gideon was, I think, and we're going to see this more clearly in the rest of the chapter, I think he was trying to steal glory from God. He had quickly forgotten that God alone deserves the glory for every victory. And a similar story plays out in the city of Peniel or Penuel. Another group of Israelites are there and, and again, Gideon asks for help and they say, no, we're not going to do it. And he says, don't be surprised when I come back and burn down your tower. Well, in verses 11-13, Gideon and his men tracked down the Midianite and the Midianite leaders, the 15,000 that were remaining. And now it's time for revenge on these two cities that didn't help him out. And so that's what verses 14-17 um, through 17 are about. First, he goes back to Sukkoth in verses 14 and 15. And he captures this youth. And the youth gives him this intel to be able to tell who the these 70 leaders are. He finds out who these 70 leaders are. And notice what he does to them in verse 16. He took the elders, these 70 leaders, of the city and, and um, thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. Apparently, this was an act of torture. Gideon would have put on, put heavy weights on these men and then dragged them through the thorns and the briars to cause a great amount of torture and possibly, or, or perhaps I should say probably, death on these 70 leaders because you didn't help me. He's taking out vengeance upon himself. And what does the Scripture say? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, God says. Our job is not to carry out judgment on other people. God will take care of that. And in this case, I think Gideon was not acting on behalf of God, but on, on behalf of his own pride, his own lusts. He does the same sort of thing in verse 17 to the city of Penuel. He tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So Gideon's taking uh, or showing no mercy here. He fails to honor God by taking revenge on the eastern tribe. second way Gideon fails to honor God is, number two, by ruthlessly killing the Midianite kings. It would be one thing if he just killed them, but he ruthlessly kills the Midianite kings, verses 18-21. through 21. And what, you're, what you should see in these verses is that God is not, uh, Gideon is not concerned with God's honor here. He is concerned about personal revenge. He asks them, what did you do to these other men of the city? And, or who are these other men that you attacked? And, and the kings say, well, they're just like you. They're, they're sons of a king. Gideon says, those were my brothers. And now you're going to die. Otherwise, if you didn't kill them, I would have let you live. But because they were my brothers, you will die. Specifically, they were full-blooded brothers. He calls them the sons of my mother. And so in an effort to humiliate the kings, notice who he calls to do the killing. Verse 20, So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. I don't know how old this young man was, but I think he was probably younger than military age because he's fearful of, of following through on it. In fact, he doesn't. This son of, of Gideon. And I think what Gideon is probably doing here is he's probably putting his son in a position of honor because he's able to kill a foreign or, a, or an ungodly, an evil king. 
And also, he's disgracing these Midianite kings. Midianite kings would have hated to be killed by a young man, just like they would have hated to be killed by a woman. We'll see that next week with Abimelech. And so, in an effort to humiliate these kings, he asks, and to honor his son, he turns to Jether and says, here, you have the honor. You are able to kill these, but he doesn't. Instead, Gideon takes out the fury on these two kings himself. Verse 21, Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise up yourself and fall on us, speaking to Gideon. For as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels' necks. Nothing inherently wrong with killing evil kings. Uh, in fact, God allowed it and even called for it in many other places. I just think the way that Gideon handled this was not, uh, it wasn't done out of a concern for God's honor, God's glory. It was done out of his own bloodthirstiness and his own desire for revenge. The third way in that, that Gideon fails to honor God, he fails to honor God by taking out revenge on the eastern tribe. He fails to honor God by ruthlessly killing the Midianite kings. And then number three, Gideon fails to honor God by making a golden ephod. With all the victories and the spiritual, uh, the the spiritual uh, progress that he had made in the previous chapter by showing faith to God, by taking 300 men to war, by offering a sacrifice in a time of famine and blight, uh, now we have Gideon kind of going the other way and kind of forgetting about God and and failing to honor God. And here, he, he has the people contribute to this golden ephod. We'll talk about this here in just a second, verses 22 through 28. In verse 22, the people of Israel recognize the ability of Gideon, and so they demand that he become their king. Rule over us, verse 22 reads, both you and your son and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. People ask Gideon and his family to become their leaders. They want to make Gideon their king, but like the people of Israel after them in 1 Samuel 12, their motives are not godly. There is nothing inherently wrong with a king or a human ruler. In fact, God allowed it and even ordained it. The problem is in desiring a king to the exclusion of God. They saw that Gideon was a capable leader, one that was able to win battles, And so they wanted someone like that who would reign over them, but to the exclusion of God, as we'll see here in just a second. Gideon sees right through their request and I think recognizes the false motives behind them. Look at verse 23. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. No, the Lord shall rule over you. I think Gideon's response here was a genuine one, one that we should commend him for. He he didn't desire to garnish followers. He was a good leader, but he didn't want to take the place of God. However, his next choice is not very wise in verses 24 through 28. Gideon, I think, has somewhat good motives here. He wants to uh, he wants to reinstate worship to God, but he does it in the wrong form. The tabernacle had been compromised. It was no longer a place of worship. The people were far from God at this time and were far from consulting God. And so Gideon came up with an idea. 
if I make a way that we can consult God, then we'll have this at our disposal. We'll have this right here in our city. So Gideon came up with an idea to make a golden ephod so that they could begin consulting God. That was the purpose of the ephod. An ephod was what the priest used to be able to determine God's will before the Word of God was composed. That is, before it was finished. Uh, during the time of, of Gideon and before him, people would, would what they would call divine God. They would find out God's will for them by taking out these two stones out of the, the ephod, which is kind of a breastplate or breastpiece that goes on the, the garments of the priest. And it was all done up in, in very uh, much ornamentary. And they would have two stones in them Apparently one was one color and one was the other. And so they would ask God what His will was for a situation and it would be completely appropriate for them to do that as long as it was the priest that was doing it. He was asking God what He wanted and, and God would tell them through the, these, these stones, this ephod. And so Gideon wants to do that. He wants to have this ephod, but he doesn't go through the priest. And so there are a few problems with this. One, he's not a priest. And two, he's not doing it at the temple. Or not at the tabernacle, I should say. So he decides that he's going to make his own. In verses 24 through 26, he says, I'm not going to rule over, over you, but God is. But here's a way we can consult God. Verse 24. Here's my request of you, that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. And they do so, and notice how much they give. Verse 26, 1,700 shekels of gold, about 43 pounds. And with this gold, he crafted an ephod, which is what the priest would use to inquire of the Lord before the Bible was completed in written form. And I think this is very similar to Aaron's sin against God. That Aaron, I think, had proper motives. He wanted to see the people worship God, but he did it in the wrong form. God said, don't make any idols. Don't try to worship me through an image. It doesn't work. I cannot be confined to one image. And yet Aaron made the golden calf and the people worshipped it and God was displeased. He was seeking to worship God, but he did it with the wrong form, an unacceptable form. And I think Gideon's doing the same thing. He wanted to see the people consulting God, worshipping God, but he wasn't willing to do it according to God's standard God's law, which was through the temple, through the sacrifices, or the tabernacle, I should say, through the sacrifices. And the problem with this idea is seen in how the people respond to it, how they use it. Look at the end of verse 27. Or let's just read the whole thing. Verse 27, Gideon made it into an ephod, the 43 pounds of gold, and placed it in his city, Ophrah. Not, this is not where the tabernacle is. And all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Instead of it becoming a means by which they would worship and consult God, what did it become? An idol. They were playing the harlot with another idol. Just as chapter 2, verse 3 says they would do often. In chapter 8, verse 28, we have a summary of Gideon's success before we move on to his next failure. Verse 28, 
So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift their heads anymore, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. This is significant because with Jephthah to follow and Samson, there is no commendation for their deliverance. No praise for Gideon or, or for um, Jephthah and Samson, but for Gideon there is. What we're going to see from this point on is that it's only going to get worse. And perhaps you're surprised by that because it's already been bad enough. These people are wicked people. They're constantly turning back to false gods. But Gideon was a man of faith, and he's commended as a man of faith in the book of Hebrews. And so that's why we know that. And he's commended here in verse 28, and this will be the last commendation in the book. And also from this point on, we should also note that the period of rest that the people have is going to be shorter than the period of oppression. Up until this point, the period of rest, the, the period of oppression has been short and the time of rest has been long. Here it's 40 years. But after this, the time of pre- oppression is going to be long and the period of rest is going to be short. These cycles are going to happen more quickly and the, the, the period of oppression is going to be much greater. Gideon fails to honor God by, by um, attacking and killing the eastern tribes. Gideon fails to honor God by ruthlessly killing the Midianite kings. Gideon fails to honor God by making a golden ephod. And then number four, Gideon fails to God in his last days or in his retirement. Gideon fails to honor God in his retirement. Gideon's success led to great spiritual failure. In verse 30, we find out that he built a harem of wives. It reads, Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. Gideon is in a position where he is an accomplished military leader. And he's done some great things for the people of Israel. And along with that comes the opportunity for more wives. And he takes it. He takes the opportunity. Including, surprisingly, a Canaanite wife with whom he has an illegitimate son. Abimelech. One of the wickedest people that we're going to come in contact in this book. We're going to learn about him next week in chapter 9. His name, Abimelech, means my father is king. So while Gideon initially turned down the request of the people for him to lead the people, for him to be their king, his life seemed to transition into that position. It wasn't, you know, no. I will not rule you. My sons will not rule you. The Lord will rule over you. Now it is. He calls his son, My father is king. In other words, I am king, and now my son's name is My father is king. And as a result of Gideon's failure in his retirement, Israel turns back into apostasy. Verses 33 to 35. It came about as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. As soon as Gideon died, this is what happens quickly. There's a little bit of level of stability when the leader is around and is leading. 
And when God is using him, and then when he's gone, they quickly revert back to their former sins, and usually in greater ways, as we learned in chapter 2. And yet, this was not a surprise that they played the harlot after he died because they played the harlot with false gods while he was alive, verse 27 tells us. And here in verse 33, it tells us that he made covenants with Baal. Specifically, Baal bereth, that is, the Baal of the covenant. Instead of making covenants with God, the people made covenants with false gods. Notice verse 34, they did not remember the Lord who delivered them. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. While Gideon did great things for Israel, and while he should be commended for those great things, and while Israel was responsible for its own sin, just as we are responsible for our own sin, Gideon had some, he bore some of the responsibility. He contributed greatly to the downward slide of the people into greater sin. And it resulted in, verse 35, that he did not show kindness to Gideon's family. And so while chapter 8 shows kind of the warts of Gideon, the text ultimately commends him at the end. Jerubbabel, they did not show the kindness to Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he has done in, in Israel. So while we see him for all of his his faults and his failures, the text commends him at the end because we can quickly dismiss somebody like this and say, well, he probably wasn't a believer. All those things that he did were in spite of him rather because, rather than because of him and so on. But, but we have to be careful with that because the text of Scripture actually commends him. So let me leave you with uh, a few points of application from our study tonight. Number one, Be careful of success that excludes God. Be careful of the pursuit of success that excludes God. A God-excluded pursuit of success. That is, Gideon was thriving on success. He had seen God work. And he enjoyed to see God work. It took him a while to get there. But success can quickly turn us away from God if we start to pursue it at the exclusion of God. You see, Proverbs thirty-seven through ten is, or seven through nine is a passage I think of often, particularly when we come across people who are thirsty for financial and uh, and uh, and physical success. It says this. Two things I ask of you, the the writer of Proverbs says to God, two things I ask of you, God. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may be full and deny, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I might be tempted to steal and profane the name of my God. The, the wise man here says, give me neither poverty nor riches. If I'm poor, if I'm too poor, what might happen is I might forget you or I might be tempted to steal from you. And don't give me riches. Don't give me financial success because 
if I get financial success, I might forget you. I might turn away from you. So don't give me either one of those. Give me enough so that I will trust in you and be full and satisfied in what you have given me. That I would be, as Paul says, content no matter what circumstances that I am in. You see, the, the, the writer here in Proverbs says that he doesn't want success that it is to the exclusion of God. He wants to pursue success only as long as it includes God. So be careful of a God-excluded pursuit of success. Number two, our earthly failures can be God's success. Our earthly failures can be God's success. Now, what I didn't say is that earthly failure can lead to God's success in your life but that the failures can actually be God's success. What is the worst worst thing that could happen to a person with a great job who is on the brink of a a once-in-a-lifetime promotion that would mark him off as one of the premier businessmen of the country? What is the worst thing that could happen to him? To lose his job? And yet, losing his job, earthly failures, might be what God uses to save him from catastrophic spiritual failure, forgetting God and turning his back on God. When we understand that we are utterly helpless apart from God, chapter 7, isn't that what the point of chapter 7 was? God alone deserves the glory. He can save by many or by few. With Gideon, he saved by few. So that he would show that he alone deserved the glory. When we understand that we are utterly helpless apart from God, that's when God can use us. But when we get to a position where we think everything depends on us, then, friends, we are on the brink of spiritual failure. So word to the wise. When you pray for other believers in this church, please don't pray for their financial success primarily. That is not what they need most. That is not what our church needs most. People who are financially successful. Certainly you shouldn't pray for their failure. It's not what I'm suggesting. But when you pray for people in this church, pray that God would make them Christ-like whatever it takes. Even if it means the loss of their job. Because actually a job promotion could sink them spiritually. If that means a job loss to keep them on the right track towards spiritual success, then let it happen, God. Let God be God. Let Him determine what happens with their financial success or failure. But ultimately, what you ought to be praying for is their spiritual well-being, not for their financial success. Same thing could be said about their physical well-being as well. We love to pray for physical needs, and we should. We should we would be foolish not to pray to God for these things. But that shouldn't be the primary thing that we pray for. Because God may be using those things to keep them from the sin that could draw them away from God fully and finally. Isn't that why Paul got the thorn in the flesh? A messenger from Satan to torment me. And yet, he prayed to God and asked that God would remove it from him. And God said, no. I don't want you to boast in yourself. And he said, if that's what it takes in order for me to stay away from being too proud, 
that I'll take physical failure. Do you see? Our primary concern is not earthly success. It is God's success. And if that means the loss of financial well-being or the loss of physical well-being, then let God be God. Let Him do what He wants to in us. Number three. Honor God in the ordinary. Honor God in the ordinary. I think this is one of the hardest things to do as a Christian, is to honor God in the ordinary. Sometimes we hear and read about these great people of God who left it all to follow God and make great sacrifices and did great things for God. And, and certainly God is worthy of that kind of devotion. But then we look at ourselves and we think, man, what a waste of a Christian I am. But I think God wants you to see tonight that He should be honored in the ordinary times of Christian lives. Not all of us are called to be the Jim Elliots or the Amy Carmichaels of, the, of, the, of history, right? And yet God still needs to be honored in our lives in the ordinary. We don't have to have a biography written about us in order to do great things for God. Great things for God start with trusting in God and the ordinary. Do you know why God used some of these people in great, spectacular ways? It's because they were faithful in little things. So God made them faithful much. God may never put you on in, in the limelight in the sense that you are able to do great things, see lots of people come to Christ, and churches uh, grow to, to great heights, and and um, and biographies written, and so on. I think He is calling you and He's calling me to trust Him in the ordinary. Honor God in the ordinary times of life. And I think it's harder than trusting, trusting Him in the extraordinary times. Ask Job. You know, when the trial first hits him like a whirlwind, he responds, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Here's an extraordinary thing that's happened to him. And he quickly turns to honor God. And, and great job, Job. We, we should commend him for that. But then after months, of the trial going on and on. It gets into the ordinary times of life. It gets tough to trust God. And this is where God is really setting us apart from all those other people in the world who name the name of Christ but quickly turn away when trials and persecution come and choke them out. Real Christians will stand up and, and honor God in the ordinary. Number four, faithful, godly leaders are not exempt from serious sin. Faithful, godly leaders are not exempt from serious sin. I'm not making a confession with that statement. And you're thinking, well, we, we don't think you're a faithful, godly leader, so... Why did you even bring this up? But um, Gideon clearly was a faithful, godly leader overall. He's commended two times at the end of the chapter. Hebrews 11 commends him as a faithful, godly leader. But he didn't finish well. He's not exempt from serious sin. And neither is any other man or woman of God who's in a position of leadership. 
And so that means that a long-time faithful, godly leader may need to be rebuked. There will be times when I need to have my sin exposed. And you know who God has brought into my life to do that? You. You have responsibility to guard my heart from being pulled away. You have a responsibility to to help guard my heart through your prayers for me. And I am not exempt. Just because I've been called by you as the church to be in this position, just because I've been here for several years now, doesn't mean that I'm exempt from serious sin. And so you need to be regularly praying for me. And I would urge you to do that. Because even the best of leaders, those who have been around a lot longer and have done lots of great things, are susceptible to serious sin. Number five, we must work hard. We must work hard to leave a godly legacy. We might like to convince ourselves that we're living a perfectly wholesome and godly life, but we need to be honest with ourselves and with others and recognize that even the best believers in the Bible failed miserably. Just think about some of the great men of faith who failed miserably. Abraham. Prostituting his wife out so that he would be free from from the potential death that could come from the people. Isaac followed his father's footsteps and did the same thing for his wife. Jacob, a trickster, a conniver, Moses, didn't even trust God when he saw him face to face there in the burning bush. David fell into sin with Bathsheba. Peter denied Christ three times. Even the best of godly leaders can, can fail miserably. And so we need to work hard to guard ourselves so that we leave a godly legacy. Maybe God hasn't put you in a position of significant leadership, but you still need to work to leave a godly legacy because people are watching you. As Christians, that means we must work hard to persevere and to finish strong. And we need to work hard to leave a good example for the next generation. We just expect that the next generation is going to pick up the same passion and fervor for the doctrines of Christ and, and for the truth of God's Word. Do you think it just happens automatically? It only happens, I would suggest, as we as a church are leaving faithful legacies for them to follow, to see, to, to, to experience, to watch in person. Even great spiritual leaders, even great men and women of God failed miserably in the Bible and in history. And they finished weekly. So make it your goal in life to finish strong. To finish strong. To, to work hard to pass on a godly legacy to the next generation. Gideon is a great example for us of faith, but he's also a great example of how it can quickly go wrong in the ordinary. And we need to work hard to, to honor God, to trust God in the ordinary times of life. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to do, but God can receive great glory when we do.
Let's pray. Father, I pray for grace to comprehend Your Word and its application to us. I, I can think of specific ways in which I need to respond to You. And, and so I pray that You would forgive me for where I have failed You in these areas and help me to, to turn to You and, and to honor You in a way that You deserve. Help each person here to do the same. Lord, guard my heart from, from sin from straying from You. I pray that You would do the same for the people here in this church. Thank You for their commitment to godliness and faithfulness and love and greater knowledge of You. And I pray that You would use Your Word tonight to be an encouragement and a challenge to each one of us as we go from this place. May you help us even in the ordinary and the mundane of this week not to think that our lives are unimportant in this world with billions of people but that we are lighthouses. We are beacons of Your glory. and we, we don't want to mar the picture of Your worth with the sin that we enjoy and that we allow. So please help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.